have your Bibles, turn in them with me to John chapter 8, and we're going to continue on after we finish with um, the woman caught in the act of adultery in verse number 12. You know, before um, I get going here, you know, there's been a lot of people have been asking me a lot of questions about um, politics and things, and uh, you have noticed that I haven't said very many things except just to speak what the Word of God says. I believe that that's important because that's my job. <laughs> you know, you know um, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of voices out there, and we need to be able to just communicate the Word of God, its truth, without fail in a generation that's looking to all kinds of saviors, political ones included, and they just don't exist. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. So anyway, John chapter 8, turn it there with me to verse 12. If you don't have it, the words will be on the screen here. And I'm going to read from the NLT today. I don't usually do that, usually the ESV so, uh, or the New King James Version. But uh, just to get the narrative down here, what Jesus is teaching, um, John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you are making these claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect, because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your law says if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. Verse 18. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? they asked. Jesus answered. Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. The reason the Pharisees are so upset is because Jesus makes an outlandish claim here, right? It's a heretical one. He claims to be God. He claims to have equal footing with God. The Father. So Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one, and that's a contentious statement. That's worthy of stoning. That's worthy of death. They didn't even say God's name out loud in one form. In fact, it was, it was considered taboo to even mention his name in, in one way. But the scripture talks about Jesus being God in his divine attributes. And the first thing I want to do is just spend a little bit of time talking about that before we get into Jesus' profound statement that he makes that he is the light of the world. So Jesus saying he is God is a biblical concept, one that is affirmed by the gospel writers and others. In, in John chapter 1, the Bible says, of course, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In fact, Verse 14 says that it was Jesus because it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning, and the Bible says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John affirms the divinity in the flesh, the incarnate Christ that we celebrated not that long ago. John chapter 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I was born. I am, in fact, are the two words that he uses there. And the religious leader took up stones to stone him at that point. I mean, they, we've had enough of this guy. This is enough. I'm tired of this. 
And so he makes this claim in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas worshipped him as God. Romans 9, 5, Paul writes, God, Jesus is God over all. 1 John 5, 20, there is one true Christ, one true God, Christ Jesus. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn in them another place. There's a few scriptures this morning, but Colossians chapter 1, where this idea, this principle of theology is presented to us of sound doctrine in scripture that Jesus is God. Look at this in verse Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Are you catching that? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the creator. He's the master architect of creation. Have you ever considered that? That Jesus is creator. And look at this. It says, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things created through, all things were created through him and for him. You catching that? Verse 17, and he is before all things. In other words, Jesus is pre-existent eternity. Pre-existent eternity past, right? He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Right? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be the boss. He might be glorified above all. He might be eminently above everything that is pre. He is eminent. He is the only. For in him all the fullness of God, I think some versions say, even say the, use the word Godhead, for in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The ESV says, all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image here is the word icon, which is spelled with E-I-K-O-N, which is where we get our word icon from, which means a copy or a resemblance. You know what an icon is, right? It resembles something. It, it, it represents it. So Jesus is the perfect image, the exact likeness of God, and is in the very form God. Now, Scripture goes on to describe Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Now, this sort of seems contradictory. Paul writes, how can Jesus be the firstborn of creation if he is preexistent all and he is creator? How can creator be the created? It's impossible, right? Scripture tells us this, and Paul writes this, but the, there are two things that he writes to help us understand this, and it's really important. First of all, as we have seen in all these references that I've just read and, and many others, that Jesus is from eternity past. In the, the eternal future, he is God. Um, also, in the context here, the firstborn is the, the preference or rank rather than it's not based on birth order in terms of what's, what he's referring to. And Paul knows that his hearers understand this because he's writing both in a culture mixed with Jews and Greeks, and they both understand that it's not cons the, the order of ranking in, in the culture is not necessarily by the firstborn or the birthright. The inheritance comes as blessed and ordained by however the Father sees fit. So he was, uh, whether he was born first or not. So God refers to Israel like this even in the Bible. Even though he calls Israel his firstborn in this nation, they weren't the first nation, and we know this. There were other nations that were before God called out and, and reached out and changed Jacob's name to Israel. So uh, this is important because if you have any Mormon friends, how many have a Mormon friend or know a Mormon? Okay, they will tell you that Jesus was created and that he is the brother of Satan. 
Okay, this is a theology issue. It's a problem because Jesus was not created. He was from forever past. He is the eternal God, both preexistent eternity and forever eternity in the future. Satan was created of the, of the angels at, at a certain point in time. So here we have this mix-up. And there's, this teaching has actually in, uh, infiltrated this stupid idea. has infiltrated, uh, and I call it stupid very plainly. You can quote me on that. In today's Christian church uh, as well. I hear it sometimes on Christian television where we are just, we are Jesus. We are God. We are little gods with a little g on this earth given uh, this preeminence or predominance and many teach and, you know, also that we're equal with Jesus as though we're, we are equal with God and that's not what the Bible says here and we'll get, deal with that more later but remember Jesus' claim. The big issue here is Jesus makes this claim so outlandish that it, it really makes them mad. It ticks them off. They're getting ready to stone him. They don't like what's being said. They were up in arms that he would say this. So here's the power of, of Jesus being God. Here it is. Here's the big secret. Love. That's it. It is his love. When you see Creator Jesus giving his life, when you see Creator, G Creator Jesus laying down his life for you and I, it's overwhelming. What kind of sense does it make for someone who is going to be judged and accounted for and charged to be guilty and have to face endurance of death to even go back into Jerusalem? Why would a man, the Bible says, embrace the cross? Why would he do that? What sense does it make? Because of love. Because of his great love. Friends, when you and I see this is God speaking God and we speak human and we understand when he speaks human, when he comes down in the flesh, we can feel the cross. When we see what happens, when we read about it or, or it's depicted to us in some way or we contemplate it or we think about it, all of a sudden we're struck with these images of Jesus enduring such harshness and, and hurt and pain because pain hurts. When, when you... When you hurt yourself, or if you've been in the hospital, or you've broken a bone, or you know, something, you, we know that pain hurts, and to understand the, the, the cruelty of what Jesus had to endure, we identify. When you see someone, or there's an accident on the road, and there's an ambulance there, and you see them working on someone on the side of the road, you, you identify immediately. You have a, a certain empathy, you have a certain compassion, a feeling, because that flesh communicates with you. You see it. You go, oh, that must be painful. I, oh, that must be hurtful. And, and you begin to think about the family members they might have or, or what kind of situation that they might be in in their life. And, and you consider their pain and their agony. When we look at Jesus on the cross and we see God in the flesh coming down and enduring this cruel, awful beating and punishment and, and being nailed to a tree like a piece of meat, we look at this and we go, ouch, that hurts so bad. What kind of person would do that for me? What kind of person would endure such pain for someone who really I don't even know? And yet he does. When we see this, we identify. We identify with him because of his love. Now, the heartbeat of this text is in verse number 12. And that's what I really want to get to. John 8, verse 12. Let's read the first part. The Bible says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. Let's just stop right there. Let's just stop right there. This is quite a statement. I am the light of the world. I am 
Jesus says, the light of the world. Of the many names of God that there is in Scripture, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. Light has tremendous significance, right? In fact, in Genesis, we learn that light was created to separate the light from the darkness. God created the first day. Now, God did not create the sun and moon till the fourth day. Light exists outside of the ability for the sun to shine and give its light or for the moon to reflect it from the sun's luminance. Light, the Bible says, is God. God is light. And we look at this and we think, how marvelous is that? That he, he creates these two lights, two things in the sky to govern, one to cover in the day and one to govern the night, the Bible says. And since Scripture says that God is light, he is the one who commands the light. Light also reveals things that are hidden. It wasn't that many years, well, it was quite a few years ago, actually, here at the church, there was a, a young man who was at Northwest University, and his name was Joe. Joe Bridger, he's a great guy. I hope he's listening this morning. He was a pastor in... Um, Michigan for a long time. In fact, Pam and I saw him um, when we were back in Michigan on vacation a few years ago. And um, him and his wife, Dorothy, and their wonderful couple, they were here. And he moved and got married and, and went off to Michigan and pastored a church uh, for a few years. And now he's pastoring a church. He just started, I think, this Sunday in Wisconsin. So he's pastoring there now. So, um, but anyway, while he was working here, we used to have this truck called the Power Station. I don't know if anyone is here from those days. We had a big box truck, and we had put a big, huge piano hinge on the one side. The whole side folded down, um, and we had an instant puppet stage and stuff. And we went during the summer on Saturdays uh, to a couple apartment complexes and put tarps on the ground, and the kids came out. And we had uh, sidewalk Sunday school all summer. It was just great. And uh, so he was one of the progenitors of that. And, and so <clears throat> anyway, while we were here, he, there's lots of work to do with that. It's a busy, summers were very busy because of the outreaches that were going on. And uh, he was up in the attic and he was getting something for um, one of the things. Now our attic is can be a little scary at the church, but you've got to understand the dynamics of the attic starts right here. It has like a 12 foot ceiling it's a really tall ceiling. It slopes downward that way. And it's, it's pretty, it goes the full length of this building. So it's really long. And in one corner over here, <clears throat> right above this, right next to the smokestack there for our um, hot water tank, there's like this little closet with a closet rod on there. And there's all these clothes from years past when we used to do the Easter plays and stuff. We have costumes hanging you know, in, the, in this, and they're hanging there. And up in the attic, <clears throat> behind them, unbeknownst to me, I, I didn't know we even had these, but there was a life-size paper mache Mary and Joseph for a nativity. Well, Joe's up there, and the lighting is not too good. And he goes in there and parts those clothes on the hanger, and Mary falls toward him. He came down, he jumped out the hole for the attic access, came running, Pastor, there's a dead person in the attic. So I went, oh, you got to be kidding me, man. No, he said I was doing the costume. And I kind of thought, eh, there's something not right here. So I went up there, and as soon as we saw the paper, the big paper mache of, of Mary and Joseph, we were laughing so hard. We had to use the bathroom immediately. But it was quite hilarious. But the thing that revealed it was the light. Light illuminates things, right? When you're in the dark and you turn the light on in your house, you can see where you're walking. 
Light also gives us the ability to move around because we can see what's in the way. All these things are things that physical light does. And Jesus, being creator, sets light on the first day. The first day of creation is priority. But that's not entirely the kind of light that Jesus is talking about here, is he? When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is, says that I am the only clear, visible, true path for your life. For your living, for your walking around life, for your working life, for your responsibility life, for doing life, I am the light of your world. Not only does he say that he is the light, but he says that he is the light of all the world. He's not just of your world, but all the world. This world. Light is very proprietary. When light shines, one person doesn't own the light. When we had our candlelight service here, we do every Christmas Eve. It's a beautiful time, and we sing and worship, and the lighting, each one of its candle, each one gets his candle. After a while, the whole room illuminates, but not one person owns the light. Now, the closer you are to the light, the better you can see. Come on, that'll preach. Somebody can preach that. Anybody can get up there, right? I mean, we feel that already, so we're not going there, but we'll go another direction, because you already know that, right? I, I don't have to preach that, right? How many say I don't need to go there? Okay, a few, half of you, so we, maybe we'll... Um, but if we are here in this room, and we were to turn on the light in the middle of our candlelight, even more light would be added to it. It's, it's not, not one person owns that. It's intangible. We, we see it. We measure it by our optical abilities, our, our eyes, and there's things that can measure it. But the Bible says in 1 John 1, 5, more specifically about the light and the kind of light Jesus is talking about. It says, this is a message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. There's that statement. In him there is no darkness. Are you getting the at all part? At all. There is no darkness at all. In other words, you don't find any darkness behind him, under him, above him, beside him, diagonal from him, up down a perpendicular plane from him. Everything else outside of God is darkness because he is the light. Everything else outside of him is darkness because he is the light. Now let's go back to verse 12. In, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, he gives us a three-part equation, but we want to get to it. It says, Jesus spoke to people once more, I am the light of the world. Okay, we got that. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Okay, now notice that Jesus is starting to preach now, right? He's not just telling a parable. He's actually preaching. He preaches three points and gives an altar call. And the first point he makes is, is a part of an equation. Remember being in school, A plus B equals C. Well, he's getting ready to give us this equation. The first part, A, is the word if. If. He says, if you follow me. So if plus blank will equal blank. And we'll get there in a moment. So if I had a marker board up here, I'd write that. If plus blank equals blank. You get that image in our, our brain right now. If, he says. Now, that's quite a contemplative statement. If we think about it, anytime someone uses the word if, it is an equation. Jesus is ready to give us this equation, a condition that produces a result, a, a value. And this is really important. This is the crux of everything he is saying in this scripture. He challenges, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he challenges our desires. 
I mean, he says, if you follow me. It poses a big question, right? We are being compelled to follow Jesus. In fact, everything that Jesus says, he compels us. It's an urgent request to us. When Jesus speaks and you read the word of God, he is challenging you, and he's challenging me to do something. He's putting into the process an equation that challenges us to take up the challenge. Jesus poses a question, if you follow me. It poses a big question in our minds. We are being compelled to follow him. Consider how Jesus speaks to people almost every time in Scripture. Matthew 4.19, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 16.24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 19, 28 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say, say, tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, notice those that join with him, the sitting on his throne are ones that have followed him, will sit on the, 12, uh, the throne with the twelve, uh, sit, out, sit with me on the twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Mark 1, 17, come Follow me, Jesus says. Mark 10, 21, one thing you lack, he's telling the rich young ruler, remember? If you want to follow me, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come and follow me. This is a challenging thought, and it's a challenge to us from Jesus' words. You should, and I should, never be a believer and not a follower. Come on now. We should not be a believer and not a follower. There are many believers, but there are very few followers. There were very few disciples that stuck with Jesus. Everyone else who had claimed to be his disciple after he had come into the city just a few short days later were shouting, crucify! Believing is one thing, but following is another. Look at this is a challenge of Jesus' words, that, that we should not be a believer but not, and not a follower. And this, especially in our generation, following Christ is not popular. Really following Jesus, looking like, living like, sounding like, acting like Jesus is antithetical to the ideas that are in culture, pop culture, politics for the most part, and the world. It is indifferent to the way everyone else is living. And yet Jesus calls us to this way of following. Following is a big deal. Following challenges the way that you act, the things that and how you say them, <clears throat> the words you use, <clears throat> following challenges everything. Thank you. Thanks. Following challenges how we are going to live. How we choose to follow through, how we choose to act and speak. The language that we use, the very the way that we conduct our business. Are you catching this? Following Jesus is being a follower of the way that Jesus lived, acted, related to people. Look at this. The great deception in the church is that somehow we can believe and neglect to follow. 
And let me tell you how important Jesus makes following. Look with me at a couple of scriptures. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6 and also 1 Corinthians 3. These are really important. These may not be concepts that we have considered much. <clears throat> Matthew 6.19 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for the word invest make a deposit in lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where neither thieves break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also we have to learn I believe all of us and be challenged with this to distinguish between our belief and our behavior and I want us to write these two statements down they're in your bulletin and they're very important the first one goes like this our belief determines where we will spend eternity that's the one we understand right that is for by grace you're saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not by works lest anyone should boast I am not questioning anyone's salvation God is the judge I am not the judge okay we understand that when we believe in Jesus that is salvation Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says if we confess the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead we will be saved for it's with your mouth that you confess now that's the only place he adds the, the place where we use our mouth to confess Jesus even says believe in the Son and you're saved everywhere else except that one place it says confess with your mouth and I believe Paul is saying that it is impossible to believe without telling someone I don't think we say come up here repeat this prayer after me and say these words and you are saved no I, I don't believe that believing changes you believing does something our belief determines where we're spending eternity that believing in Jesus gives us eternal life we understand that that he is the one that only one that can give that that is the hope of the world that is the light of the world the second statement equally as true and yet even more pointed for us believers our behavior will determine how we will spend eternity now notice that Jesus says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven we don't understand I think maybe this is really important um, that God doesn't need anything more to finish the streets of gold he doesn't need you to take anything to heaven with you you can't put anything in your casket in this world the concept and the principle is true equally that Jesus's words here that what you do while you are in this world and living in this world and acting in this world how you think and act and behave that God is when you're allowing God to work through he knows you're not going to be perfect none of us are right praise God for his grace but the things that we do now are investing for eternity are we catching that not everyone will receive the same rewards in heaven friends we know that when we'll go to heaven because we believe in Jesus our behavior determines the, the how many rewards the Bible says and the degrees of responsibility and treasure that will also be given in heaven are you catching that he didn't say store up for yourselves 
treasures for the Father in heaven. For yourselves, he says. It's not like they need anything more for heaven. Heaven is the thing. It says, Jesus says, for yourself. Now look at me. Look, look, <laughs> you don't look at me. Look with me at Paul's words as he affirms these ideas in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Look at how Paul puts this so plainly. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it. Now, we aren't talking about a physical building here, right? You're catching that. He is just, he's, he, 1 Corinthians, he's bringing correction, he's bringing instruction about how that we're to be living our lives and how we're supposed to be focusing outward and, and the things that we are supposed to be doing in terms of focusing on God as well. This is really important. He says that you're building this building and we're supposed to take care how we build on it. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of salvation. That foundation is laid. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let him each evaluate each man's work because it will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of each one each sort of work each one has done. The fire of God's um, judgment. We will all be judged by what we've done. Now you're saved by grace through faith. That's established. It's all reliant upon the sovereignty and goodness of our God. His power. He is good. It is the significant fact, though, that we have an opportunity, rather, we have work to do while we're here. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on it, foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. How many just want to make it to heaven by the skinnier teeth? Yeah, I'm looking forward to just barely getting saved. I want to live like the devil and, and the world so much that I'm going to just, just totally rely on the grace of God to save me because I believe that Jesus is the only way. So that when I get to heaven, I won't have any rewards, but at least I'll get there. Now, it's really interesting that we don't talk about this much in church today because we're focused so much on evangelism, which is important. But Scripture is saying some things, and God is speaking very loud here about our actions because of how we are following Jesus. And for those of you that may not think that this is the case, and what Paul is making, the very next scripture, he is talking about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our actual bodies. In other words, the actions, the place that we live, our flesh. The Bible is saying, God is saying that sure, many will get to heaven by believing, but our behavior determines how we'll spend eternity. And, and this is why we're here this morning. Because we want to be better Christ followers. Because, friends, I know in this room, and you and I suffer, we have suffered loss. We suffer in our bodies. We suffer pain from separation in families. We suffer issues in life. All kinds of ways. We are suffering. And we are searching. We are seeking God. We're saying, God, God, 
I want to live like you want me to live. I want to do what you want me to do. This is the purpose of the church, right? It's why we're here, to grow more in his grace, to, to grow deeper in our relationship with him. I mean, many in today's church, we, we may focus and we've added this great dynamic of evangelism. We want people to come to church to know Jesus. But I got to tell you, friends, the main way that people come to know Jesus is through you. I mean, more than 70% of people that come to church do so because you invite them. Churches don't grow anymore because people quit inviting their friends and family to church. They quit being the ambassadors in this world that we're supposed to be in. That's just the truth. They don't come because of the preacher. I'll tell you, in this last days, when all the false prophets are revealed after all of this election stuff, whether they said one way or another, people will still follow them. People will still be listening to them. It's, just, it's a crazy world we live in. People are out to get their money. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you something else. This is an opinion from Larry. You can block this out, take it offline, whatever you want. I believe that the small churches that are simply preaching God's word will be the ones that survive. I'm not looking for some national prophecy to jump on a bandwagon to. I'm looking to Jesus. Let's trust in God. Let's trust in his word. Together, the church met together, and this is the reason that we're here, together. And in the church, when the first gathering of the church was for the believers. We're not saying that we don't want people who are not believers not to come to our church or, or to come to church. We want them here, amen? We want every pagan as far from God as they can get. And I, I mean that in the most respectful way. I mean, all of us are or what once we're, we're far from God in one way or another, Right? I mean, some actually declare themselves with great pride, I'm a born-again pagan. I mean, we, we want them here, right? We want them to hear the message of Jesus. And more than anything, more than I want them to hear my preaching, I want them to know you because you guys are so awesome. It is your love and communication and touching people. That is the thing that's going to make people and help people go to heaven, not giving or supporting some national thing in some way. Come on now. You are an evangelist. Well, I don't know how I got off on that. Well, anyway, <coughs> it's the reason we have small groups. It's the reason we have Wednesday nights. The reason we have women's Bible study. It's the reason we have men's groups and young adults and youth and children's ministry. It's the reason that we meet in each other's homes as believers. These are the reasons. Following Jesus means more to learn to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates, and, and to love people, and people desiring to, to live the principles of God's word. It's time that we, we do this, and we live, you know, I wasn't going to do this, it's not in my notes, but Ephesians chapter 5, look at how Paul puts it. I don't want you just to hear it from me, friends. Hear it from Paul, and I want to tell you, most of the churches, except for a couple, that Paul ministers to, are small groups of gatherings of people. 99% of the time, the church is referred to in Scripture. He's talking about the local gathering of people. And God brings his, look at the way Paul writes to them. He, he puts it, I'm going to read a lot here. Let's just read this. He says in Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, dearly love, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must, now look, he's getting ready to tell them that they're, how they're supposed to live, how they're not supposed to be living. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, 
nor in any kind of impurity of, or greed, because of these, impro these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. It doesn't say he's not there necessarily. Let's, in fact, Paul, in the church letter to the Corinthians, he addresses them as Christians, and they're all getting drunk and having sex orgies out in the foyer. How, how can that be? Because he's saying there's something you've got to invest in. I want you to follow me, not your desires. And he rebukes them strongly. Look at this. Look what he says in verse 8. For you were once darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of, here's that word again, light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Friend, is that the pursuit of your following Jesus? Are you trying on this road of life to be on a road of discovery to find out what pleases Jesus in doing those things? He says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. There's the light again. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What a list. What a list. How many love the Word of God? How many love that portion of the Word of God? Okay. How many would say there are parts I wish that we could just strike through? You know, it's discard. It's like a buffet. You know, we go to the buffet and we fill up on all the carbs, but there's all the good food there too. Lord, help us. People desiring to live the principles of God. It's time to live the Ephesians 5. It's time for God's people to be producing this because let me tell you, in the day and age, it would kill me. It would kill me to know that one of my sons was going to be in hell. It would kill me to know or to think that one of my loved ones is going to be separated from God forever. And I'm constantly pleading with extended family members and emails and stuff, you know, come to Christ, follow Jesus. It's a better way to live. There's a lot better stuff to win. There's more peace. There's more fulfillment. There, there's more joy. There's more action. There's a lot more good stuff when we're following Jesus. Don't just believe. Follow Jesus. Time to live this kind of life, loving what is honorable rather than what is filthy, watching what is good rather than what is lust-filled, loving and serving and giving rather than taking and being selfish, caring for one another and praying for one another rather than taking a nap, worshiping instead of cursing, loving God's word more than social media, speaking the truth in love rather than hiding in sin, being in church rather than watching the game. I got to tell you, friends, we need to stand up for something this morning and we need to be investing in treasures in heaven. Isn't this the way that God created the church? Are we wrong? 
we're right. And God is right. This is a plea for this time in which we're living. This is three points in a poem this morning. This is us saying, I will live for Jesus, and I will love what he loves and hate what he hates. All that to say, if you follow me. Look at what he says, though. The second part of the equation, if plus, look at what he says. You won't have to walk in darkness. Now, it's interesting to read the, the way that New Living says it here because it says you won't have to walk in darkness and you'll, as if to say you'll avoid pitfalls because you don't have to go that way. And it's true, um, but if you read the ESV, the King James, or the ASVP, all others say whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And I've looked at the, the Greek to, to care, try to carefully discern it, and, and both seem to come into play to be true. I believe the connotation here is not so much a command, though, as it is simply the result of following Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we don't have to walk in darkness. We don't have to walk in darkness. Darkness is fear. Darkness is doubt. Darkness is not understanding. Darkness is wandering without any hope or direction. Darkness is a lot of things. A lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I still listen to my point of grace and rust. That was back in the day. Now, Torrin Wells, I'm listening to Torrin. I'm doing good, right? No. Following Jesus adds a lot to our life. You know, the Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, John 3, 19. It says light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deed should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Friends, living in the light produces different action. It produces a different life. I am content and fulfilled because God has given life. I don't think it's a coincidence that crime happens in the darkness. I don't think it's a coincidence that illicit things are done at night under the cover of darkness, the cloak of darkness. Sin loves darkness. Sin can hide. And, and turning off the lights, if you will. People sneak around under the cover of darkness. Drug deals are done at night. Young men solicit prostitutes at night. First John 1 John 1.6 says, if we have, say we have fellowship with him, look at this, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the, what? The light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar in his word. Now, the good part of this is all we have to do is allow the light to expose the sin and confess it. And he forgives. The Bible says that we're saved, we're born again to God, but we're still going to mess up. You are not perfect. If you are, I'd like to know you a little better. Now, don't, don't say you want to get to know me a little better. I'm imperfect. I, I'm so grateful for the grace of God. If we sin, we confess. He forgives our sins. Hebrews says that the, the guilt is relieved from our conscience by the Spirit of God. That's the power of the confession of sin to God, right? I'm so grateful for that. That's good news. That, that'll preach, right? But when we... If we say that we're, you know, we pose like we're in the light, we look like we're in the light, but we are actually doing, living in darkness. Friends, we're sneaking around. It's okay to say that, yeah, praise God in church, hallelujah, glory to God, and wear a smile. But friends, what is God real? What are you really doing? Are you 
leave this room. We do not live like those without hope. We don't have to, the Bible says. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live in the hopelessness and the darkness and the despair. There used to be a day where there wasn't a lot of counselors or counseling is good and we need them. But it used to be, when I was a kid, I went, my mom and dad told me to go to the altar and wait on God there till God fixed me. If I talk back, go to the altar after I got thing. Go to the altar. Go to that place of prayer. That's where you're supposed to be. You need to go to your room, brother, and seek God. And it was said firmly and with great intensity. I mean, shouldn't that be the way we discipline our kids, probably? What does God think about that, little Larry? Go talk to him and receive his grace by confessing your anger, guilt, and resentment right now. Of throwing that truck at your sister. Amen? We look at the blessings that come from God there. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the purpose of the church, right? When was the last time you had fellowship and you were encouraged by the people that are in this room? Or when was the last time you were encouraged by anyone in your church family from directly from in relationship with the word of God? People are always looking to the pastor to be that sole thing. That is just not my place. I'm meeting with somebody tomorrow about a funeral. I mean, I got things to do, too. You do, too, right? Find someone else. And you can call me if you want. I'm not saying don't call me. <laughs> I would hate for you to feel that way. But the church should be ministering to one another. That's what the Bible says. The first result of, of living in the light is we have fellowship, he says, with one another. Our fellow, if you are rejecting and not being in the fellowship of the believers of your church, you are missing great opportunities. COVID hasn't shut that down. I don't think it ever will. We will meet covertly like the Chinese church does, right? We'll drop each other off on 12th Avenue, walk to 6th, take a bus, get down on the Amtrak. Now, let's not get in the Amtrak. We don't want to hang off the bridge again. We'll get, come down. And we'll do whatever we have to do so what we can be together. Spiritual gifts happen when we're together. Encouragement happens when we're together. And look at what else he says. Our sins are cleansed. This, all this is important because walking in the light produces people that are successful, people that are joy-filled. God wants you to be this way, friends. And the ways of his ways, the ways of living for him, are ways that bring us into that joy, into that life, into that peace, into that perfectness of goodness and hope. We are not perfect people. But he shows us the way. He is the one that gives us those those hope-filled moments, those encouraging times. This is God's plan. Hear me in this. This is what God's plan is for your life. I know this because the Word of God says it. I don't claim to be a prophet, kind of a watchman, but not a prophet. You and I are called to believe in Jesus. You are called to live for Jesus. We are. You are called to walk in the light. We're called to live a life the Bible says, worthy of the calling he's given you. And you're supposed to succeed at this. And hear this, the purpose for your success, the purpose that God wants you to succeed and be peace-filled and joy-filled and have great purpose in life, God's great purpose for you is, ex is expressed by his peace in this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus hands off the baton. You are the light of a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are not God. I am not God. You are not Jesus. I am not Jesus, but you reflect his glory. His spirit dwells in you. Jesus says right here, he commands us, he calls us and tells us that we are his light in this world. Walking in the light, worshiping in the light, obeying the light produces people that shine the light, the only light. The peace-giving, joy-filling, provider lover of our soul, the only light. Why is this best? Because it produces something in us. Look at what it produces here. As we finish verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more, saying, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to light. I think that maybe we could evaluate our effectiveness in evangelism by understanding the depth of our salvation. That God didn't just save you just to get you to heaven, friend. He saved you so that you would be joy-filled, peace-filled, and succeed in the things he's called you to in this world. He gives us this equation. If follow equals you will have the light that leads to life. You will have the light that leads to life. Let's apply this to prayer. Stand with me, would you? Thank you for your indulgence. I ask our worship team to come. Got a little preachy this morning, I know. We're living in interesting times, aren't we? And, and I got to tell you, all the more, it seems to be getting more and more difficult for us to be, to be ambassadors in this world. The darkness is growing. But you know, in this culture, in this climate that we're living in, the light shines brightest when it's darkest. When it's really dark, one little light illuminates the whole place. And you and I are so different as believers in this world right now. We stand different. And, and I praise God that there are other believers and the church is still, you know, doing its thing. But I mean, friends, during this time right now where there's so much pressure and there's anxieties and there's all these issues circling politics and all this garbage going on in the socialness of our culture, it's, 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 it's really important that we reflect the glory of God, that we shine his light.